Hello, I'm John Kenny, the Relationship Guy, and Relationship Coach, helping people to create healthy, intimate relationships. Welcome to the show, the show where we talk about all things relationships with a mix of my own relationship ramblings and some great guests from all walks of life who will be discussing the importance of relationships to them. Hello, so my guest today was born in South Africa and now resides in Western Australia. He's an endocrinologist, geriatrician and author of the book Women Are Superior to Men. Uh, he holds numerous prestigious awards and leadership portfolios, including being the head of the Australian Medical Association in Western Australia for Public Doctors. He's also freelance as an MC, a stand-up comedian, and he pursues his wife constantly to help him to maintain his own fitness levels as well as having his own podcast series, Happy Health Ever After. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Ricky Aronson. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. That was uh, a brief introduction. There's so much stuff in there. Um, can you tell the listeners a bit more about yourself, what you do and how you help? Yeah, I guess whenever people read your CV, you kind of think it's not you and you wonder how all of that happened because so much in life is serendipitous and uh, you think about how we all filled with self-doubt all along the way and you don't really expect to get the things you get. And I think it's actually very humbling often when you get there to sort of evaluate how lucky you are. But um, I uh, was born in South Africa and I did my medical training there, which was certainly a very interesting experience of doing 36-hour shifts, sleeping on the floor, seeing people who've had half their bodies shot to bits and you know being left to deal with that as a junior doctor without much support. It was a very different experience to what I experienced uh, in, in Australia. And, and in many ways, I think uh, many young people here would benefit a great deal from seeing what we went through. And uh, I mean, even as a, as a bit of a laugh, I used to have the five qualifying features of a toilet when I was an intern for the hospital toilets. <laughs> and most of them didn't qualify. There were things like a lock on the door, a toilet that flashes, um, toilet paper, soap, um, and a toilet seat. Those were my five qualifying features. And none of the toilets in our hospital qualified the ones that we used. So we, we had a pretty tough time. So um, I moved to the UK, actually, from Australia. I lived there for a while and um, loved British people, had a great time. But um, I was an outdoor South African boy by nature and moved on to Australia. So I, I did all my specialist training here. So what do geriatricians do? That's that's actually that's probably a one-hour answer in of, in of itself. Um we take care of elderly people. Elderly people are very different uh, in terms of medical care to younger people. They have very different problems. So things like dementia and mental confusion called delirium when people get sick. But but usually elderly people come with many different complex psychological, social, and medical problems that younger people don't get. So young person gets a medical problem, goes into hospital, gets better, goes home. Elderly people go into hospital, they've got 27 medications, they interact with the new medications that are prescribed, they get confused, they fall over, they break something, and they spend uh, three months in hospital. And, and, and each step of the way, you take one step forward, two steps back, and deal with an angry family who can't understand why they're getting worse. So that's, that's geriatric medicine in a nutshell. But I think the thing that I would say is that elderly people are desperately in need of advocates in the health system. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's always wonderful things you can do to make people's lives better, whatever age they are. 
Um, and you can ask me later the secret of longevity. I'll tell you the secret. Okay. Um, so, so that's one of the questions. You know, what's the secret of longevity? How do I get a better sex life? And um, things like that. So I know all the answers, obviously. Um, <laughs> although according to my according to my wife, I don't know any of the answers. So uh, <laughs> I go to work to feel like I'm right for a change. So um, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. That's that's a lot of the stuff. When I was a PT, as a coach, therapist, whatever, people closest to you always tell you. That they know better until someone tells them exactly the same thing that you've told them but that person's right and they'll just confirm that for you <laughs> correct so so endocrinology is a is hormones and glands and within that construct in our specialty we deal a lot with diabetes with thyroids but we also deal with male and female sex hormones and all the things that can go wrong in that space and that's certainly there's a lot of relationship work that ends up happening there because in endocrinology, you end up seeing people who think they have a hormonal problem, but they've actually got a relationship problem, okay. and vice versa. Right. And then hormonal problems really knock on to, to um, uh, relationship problems quite often. So you get distressed couples coming to see you with any number of problems of which the hormones might be the cause or they might be the result. So, right. um, so that's what endocrinologists do. In, in terms of other things, I guess for me personally, one of my best journeys and something which is excites me a great deal is people mm-hmm. and and the thing that i found in medicine from an early stage of my career is that many doctors aren't very good at people they and and they taught at medical school how to manage illnesses and there's so much to learn about physiology and pathology and pharmacology but there really isn't enough time spent in my opinion on how to manage people and you don't manage diseases in medicine most of the time. You manage people who have diseases. And that fascinated me. So um, I started to become uh, more and more senior in leadership in my hospital that I was working. Yeah. And as I got promoted, I was sent on leadership courses and um, learned a lot about managing teams and managing people and how the, the dynamic of that works. And I guess what fascinated me was that there's a science to that, that people aren't taught. And it's kind of inspired me to write because I feel like how is it possible that we as a species depend on relationships to be happy and successful? It's the number one factor in happiness is successful relationships. Yeah. And yet we receive no formal teaching about how to be good at the very thing that we need Mm -hmm. the most. Mm -hmm. So we don't go to school and learn how to be good husbands and wives and partners and parents and even good children to our parents. We go to school and we learn geography and science and there's a certain apprenticeship to that. And yet, psychology and human relationships are an evidence-based science and there's huge amounts of evidence to guide what will make things work mm-hmm. in a relationship and what won't. So I started to teach other doctors that and it became a sort of passion of mine and um, I ran lecture series for doctors on how to manage your team, how to connect with your patients, how to deal with the non-clinical side of medicine, which is massive. Because mm-hmm. in medicine, if, if you're treating a patient and they die because the system fails, it's just as the same result as if they die because your surgical work wasn't good enough. So if someone forgets to give their blood thin and they get a clot on their lung, mm-hmm. you know, so things come down to working in a team of nurses and junior doctors and senior doctors and physiotherapists and everyone. And you need to have this gelled team and you need to all really sense that team and that group psychology and that's something which many doctors are very bad at doing and so their teams function as individuals and that's where mistakes happen and and things go wrong 
Okay. Uh, there's a lot to say about that because there was actually a, a hospital in England called Mid Staffordshire mm. that you might have heard of. They had a huge number of deaths um, that were all the result of just teamwork breaking down and an absence of medical leadership. Right. Um, and there were hundreds of unnecessary deaths because the systems just stopped working. So right. medical leadership is incredibly important. So in the midst of all of this, I'll try to get to the point. My, um, my wife actually came along to one of my courses because um, she's a doctor as well. And right. as I was saying earlier about wives and how impressive they find their husbands, she said to me, <laughs> it'll be boring. I won't learn anything, but I need the professional development points and I need a half day off. So I'll come to your course. Right. So she came to the course and there were 50 specialists there. And at the end of it, she turned to me and she said, wow, that was amazing. I learned so much. You need to write a book. There are people out there that want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. And, and I'd really never thought to do that. And so I went, wow. Okay, if she must be obeyed, tell me, told me to write a book, I better do it. <laughs> and then actual, I did do a lot of writing about relationships, conflict avoidance, conflict management, all mm -hmm. these kinds of things mm -hmm. in, in a business and a relationship sense. And then ultimately, I was on a ward one night, I was doing all this writing and um, I was actually lucky enough to prolapse a disc in my neck, which was very lucky because um, I had to take some time off work. So yeah. it really gave me time to write. So it was like one of those serendipitous events that seemed very bad, um, mm -hmm. but it turned out really good. So I went, I was sitting on the ward the one night in the office and there were these nurses around me and they were really getting upset. And the one nurse is on the phone to her husband. She says, why is it that I have to call my husband every night to tell him to feed the kids? And one of the other nurses goes, yeah, I don't get it. How does he not learn that he needs to bath the children every night? And then the other nurse goes, you know, Having a husband's like having an extra child. Yeah. So I turned to them. I was laughing and I turned to them and I said, hey, you know, you're all just expecting too much. And they turned to me and I went, well, don't you know women are superior to men? And they went, wow, that's amazing. You should write a book. And I went, hey, I'm kind of writing that book, but it really crystallized this idea of the fact that we often, we all face similar problems in our marriages. Mm. And I wanted to sort of make that funny and laugh about that and also explore how to make those things better. So the very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> I mean, but there is so much in there. So that, that's, it's, I think you may, could maybe make that as succinct as possible. Um, so the book, I mean, I think you've, uh, when we previously spoke, you said you've taken a lot of flack over the title, Women Are Superior to Men. Can you just tell people what the, book, the book's about? And then I want to come back to this your journey a little bit more as well with with uh, how you've progressed through your career uh, because of the things that you spoke about that you've noticed. So tell us about the book. Okay, so um, I guess one of the things that fascinated me when I got married was I met up with other husbands and wives of my own age and people were getting married at a similar age. And they were all the men were complaining about the same things about their wives mm. and all the wives were complaining about the same things about their husbands. And we all like to think we're unique, and I found that really fascinating. So the book really explores typical male-female differences in a marriage and how those affect relationships in humorous and more serious ways. So it, it's about, um, you know, some of those things are really funny. We can laugh about them, mm -hmm. and some of them obviously are more serious. So you can laugh about the fact that many men spend their time pursuing their wives around begging for sex, which is a common marriage. But how do you deal with that in a marriage if that is the case? How do you deal with low libido in a marriage? What's the evidence on how sexuality works and why people have 
low or higher libidos and how does that work? And mm-hmm. so all of those things I explored in the book with a lot of anecdotes about ways that my wife is superior to me and sort of laughing at myself. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I, I'm a very pro relationship person, if I can put it that way. I think we, what mothers are amazing. And I wanted to celebrate the fact that we have these wonderful mothers and wives are amazing. So many of us have wonderful wives and we're living in a world that's become very negative about, I think, relationships and gender. But in fact, for many people, men and women, and this is again, not against people who are gay or trans or anything else, but just within the space of a, of marriage, there are many men and women who find the opposite sex incredibly exciting and, you know, beautiful and you know, you just have to, I just have to see a way a woman moves and, you know, it's the most beautiful thing in the world to me. So yeah. I think some of that magnificence of falling in love and spending your life together can get lost because there's so much politics in the space now. So I wanted to laugh and say to people, hey, it's not all so serious and miserable. We can still laugh about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I like to make a point to when I'm talking about my relationship coaching is actually relationships can actually be really easy. They don't need to be as difficult if... We work on the, those things that probably, again, they're covered in your book that help you to understand how different we are, but how we can actually really work together and be close together to to kind of find way throughs. And like you said, if you can make a make light of something when when it's possible, and not take yourself so seriously or think so seriously, it can be really useful. Well, I was just thinking about that today by coincidence. Is that it's quite interesting because we live in a time where we seem to be worshiping narcissism where everything's about my truth and my feelings. And the irony of that is that when we all so worried about our own feelings, we are offended by everything all the time. It makes us angry and depressed. Mm-hmm. But when we start caring about other people's feelings, we stop becoming so preoccupied with being offended and being upset by everything. Then we end up connecting more with people, smiling more, laughing more, because we are more connected. So I would give the opposite message to the one the world's giving and say, stop worrying so much about your truth, and your feelings, start worrying more about other people's feelings. And then you'll actually, ironically, be happy. Yeah, I guess there's a, there, there is a thing to that, isn't there? I, it's, I, I always pursue the idea of being having a good relationship with yourself. So being self-aware, understanding how you feel, what your triggers are and everything like that because that helps you to understand what might be going on for other people. So it's about then externally reflecting what you've learned about yourself. But like you said, if you're too focused on what you need all the time or what you want all the time, then you are going to be completely oblivious to the wants and needs of other people. And and ironically, the person who's going to be most affected by that is you, because we're all, we're, we're, we're pack animals, we herd animals. So we care incredibly about what other people think about us, how they treat us. And so, the, and the better you treat other people, the more considerate and kind you are to them, the more kind they're going to be back to you, the more you smile at them, the more they'll smile at you. So um, really becoming the kind of person, I think one of the things I talk about in my books is becoming the kind of person who's good at relationships. Mm-hmm. So there's a big part of that, you becoming a nice person, being likable and making yourself likable is actually a great way to become likable and to get on with other people and have a good life for your own good. So I think even if you're selfish, learning to care deeply about other people is, a, is can be a good thing for you. So even if you're selfish, it's actually really good for you because yeah, if you're yeah. in happy relationships, you'll be happy. And as you said right at the beginning, relationships are the key to happiness in life and them having the most fulfilling life anyway. I, I remember, and I've written about this in my book, and I've said a few, few times before, when I wanted to improve my relationship with my dad, I wanted to feel better 
So I killed my dad with kindness. I killed him with love because he wasn't a very open and emotional person. But by actually being engaged with him in a nice space and being in, in, in a loving, comparing and a caring and compassionate space, we've improved our relationship no end. But it's been incredibly healthy for me to think about how he feels and try and engage him on a level which makes him feel better um, because that's improved our relationship no end. But he hasn't done anything. All he's done is kind of follow my lead and I've created a space for us to improve our relationship. So I think that's a magnificent thing and, and that's so important. Um, I call it be the manager, as in the person who's always in the best position to make your life better, to make your relationships better is you. Because you know the most about those relationships, those people and what you want and what you need. Mm. And so when people stand back and blame other people and look for external negative factors that are impacting on them, they don't take the opportunity to take positive control as you've done there. Yeah, I like, like that the way you put that, to become the manager. That's a great way of, uh, of putting it. Yeah, I, I think it's so fascinating with relationships. What you're saying about your dad, which is very poignant, is that engagement's actually a two-way process so mm. people are so quick to disconnect i think it's also a protective mechanism as soon as things go wrong in relationships people withdraw because they don't want to get hurt yeah but if you want to connect with someone you you have to engage people often go oh well you know there's no engagement mm. well you can engage yeah. and that's what you did with your dad you actually engaged with him and having engaged with him you came to recognize from what i'm perceiving from what you said that he himself has many issues and many difficulties in the way mm. that he communicates in the way that he connects emotionally and having recognized that you're seeing the humanity in him and saying hey i actually want to connect with you and i need to deal with those defense mechanisms and those issues that you have mm -hmm. and having done that and just you know you never lose anything by being warm and kind to people giving to people seldom gives you a bad result mm -hmm. and, and just on that I, I just want to mention something really really interesting years ago a friend of mine lost their dad and it was a very difficult relationship that he had with his dad. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write him a letter um, about how much I respected his dad and how, how much I felt for his situation. But, you know, you often wonder if you're doing the right thing. You know, am I writing the right letter? Maybe this person doesn't want a very poignant emotional letter from a friend. Yeah. And I went to his brother, who I was also friendly with, and I showed him the letter. And he said to me, you know, there's so much more to be gained in life by showing kindness than by not showing kindness. He said, just give him the letter. And, and you know, later on, years later, he came back to me and he said, you know, that letter meant an incredible amount to him um, and was very helpful to him. So I think that's the way in life. We're so often worried about connecting with people and doing the right thing in case it's the wrong thing. Yeah. But almost, in it, almost invariably just being kind and reaching out as you did with your dad it, it, it's not likely to make things worse. And if it does, I guess it says something very strong about that relationship. And maybe it is worth withdrawing at that point. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if it hadn't, if it hadn't worked, I would have, I would have, I would have, wouldn't have flogged a dead horse, as they say. I would have um, made sure that I can get, kept myself kind of emotionally protected safe um, by, by withdrawing from actually trying to be too close, but actually recognizing where the relationships, where the relationship actually stood and how far that could actually go. Uh, I think that's really important as well, isn't it? But until you put that effort in to understand what changes you can make and and how different you can uh, engage in in things and maybe create a different response in somebody else, you're not going to know. Like you said with your friend with a letter, you weren't to know how that was going to land. Um, and at the time, maybe it was something they were would find hard to hear. But it sounds like it was 
very, very well received and something that's stayed with them for years. Yeah, and I'm going to add to that something really sad. I mean, this is an unfortunate story that ended very badly, but I think it illustrates an important point. I think we all go through our lives and the thing we regret are not taking opportunities Mm. when we get older. You know, not taking the opportunity to fix relationships, to make things better, to connect in different ways with important causes, humans, relationships, and what you've done with your dad, which is so important that you don't have to look back on a life of regret. You actually have got in there and fixed something, and now the relationship is so much less complicated for you, and you don't have all this regret of what might have been. Mm. So I had a friend many for many years as a teenager, and we were very close. And we grew apart for various reasons. He had difficulties and his behavior changed quite a lot. And we had a lot of difficulties and we gradually grew apart. And he actually, by coincidence, moved to London. Um, And um, we stopped talking to each other. And there were were times through my adult life where I just thought I should reconnect with him. And I just didn't. Because, you know, you've got ego and you kind of, oh, you know, he wasn't that nice the last time I spoke to him. And then... I came back from vacation about two years ago and my parents said, look, we didn't want to tell you while you were away, but your friend actually committed suicide. And, um, you know, I have such deep regrets about the fact that I just didn't, you know, why didn't I just send him that email? You know, mm-hmm. and the worst that could have happened was that he would have neglected it or we wouldn't have grown back together again. But, you know, these are the things that we, we make life very complicated for ourselves sometimes. And I think that's, Often there's a, there's a simple answer. Just reach out, be kind to people and connect with them. And the worst that can happen is you end up in the same place you started that they say, hey, it's not going to work for me. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that you mentioned it earlier on that people go for fear of getting hurt, don't they? That there's some kind of avoidance put in place in order to protect yourself from that space. But, you know, it, I think it's about understanding that if even if, things don't land very well you are you're going to be okay so even if you do try and reach out to someone in a relationship and it isn't maybe received in the best way or reciprocated in the in the best way actually you you're going to be okay because a lot of this avoidance stuff comes from childhood trauma or later life relational trauma but again it's not stuff that we need to continue to live with and and struggle with and we can put things in place and work on ourselves in order to overcome those to reach out and create deeper more meaningful contacted relationships I read something really interesting on that note. I think I think that's absolutely true. And we think we we also have a natural fear of rejection. And the worst kind of rejection is rejection in a relationship because when someone rejects you in a relationship, they're actually rejecting you in many mm-hmm. cases. You know, I don't want to be your friend. It's fundamentally I don't like you. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I don't want to be your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's, yeah. you know, but that's fundamental rejection of, of you. It's it's very hard. It's not the same as you apply for a job and they go, you're not the right candidate. This is like, like you're not the kind candidate to be my friend. It's like, why? Um, you know, so um, I think that's very hard. But I, I read in a, a book recently that was quite amusing. I, I don't know how one can apply this, but this guy who wrote the book just basically said, you should get into practice just going and getting girls' phone numbers if you're a guy. He said, what you need to do is every time you meet any woman who's beautiful, ask her for a phone number. And he said the reason why he does that is not because he necessarily gets all their phone numbers. He said that's a bonus if you do. But he said it gets you totally out of the mindset where when someone doesn't give you their phone number, you're so upset about it. Because he said it just becomes such a routine thing. And the lesson he's trying to teach is obviously not really that you have to get everyone's phone number, but it's to get past the idea that 
you know, the risk is actually worth it. Life is about risk and you've got to get out there. If you want to date people, you've got to get out there. If you don't, you're not going to date anyone. If you want to have a relationship, you've got to give of yourself or the relationship's going to fail. And so you've got to actually take that that leap and, yeah. and hope that you land at least once or twice in your life. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I have a different perspective on the word rejection. I, I try and throw that completely out the window. Because like you said, it's such a powerful thing that, you know, because of the need to connect and stuff as soon as we're born, that if we don't get those kind of the, the secure responses that we want from the people that are looking after us, rejection can feel incredibly painful and and and, and really kind of ruin our mental, emotional and physical well-being. Um, but if we carry that into adulthood, I, even if even if a friend doesn't or a, or a partner don't want to be with me anymore, I really try and get it across to my clients, especially that it's not about rejection. It's just about you not working together. If you don't work together, you don't work together. And that's all there is to it. If they don't want to be with you, they're not, they're just saying this isn't the right relationship for me. Um, and to try and get rid of that idea of rejection altogether. I had a, a friend when I was in the fire brigade, whenever we used to go out, he did exactly what your, your, uh, the, the person you just spoke about was talking about. He would go around to every girl, every woman, when we went out and just try and talk to them. Um, and it didn't matter if they wanted to know or didn't want to know. Eventually he'd find one person that wanted to talk to him. And he had no qualms about the fact that they would say no. He had this like oozing in this sort of self-confidence and just, you know, just didn't care that if they said no or not. And But he would go around and keep going and keep going until someone kind of he clicked with or whatever would say yes and he could get their phone number or have a chat with them. Um, and and he was the happiest one of the happiest guys that I kind of knew. He you know he never had seemed to have any worries. He people would couldn't sleep on station and stuff, but he would chuck himself on a bed and sleep like a baby all night. He was really kind of in a really good headspace, and and I think he just had no worries about what people thought about him or fears of rejection whatsoever. Well, I have to say I'm surprised that any women said no to him because when I was in the UK. I didn't get it because I was from South Africa yeah. and we didn't have this thing about firemen, but in the UK, every time <laughs> the firemen came to the hospital, like the nurses all fell over and swooned. And I was like, what's, what's the big deal about a fireman? We doctors are awesome. Look at us. And they were like, no, 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 the firemen are awesome. So, yeah. so I, I must just tell you on that note, um, I, I always have ridiculous anecdotes. This is a true story. So I was in doctor's residence in the UK. I was actually um, in Somerset at the time. And this is the most ridiculous story, but I mm. went for a shower. Uh, this is a very innocent thing to do. I was, I was in the UK on my own. My wife was then my girlfriend. She was back in South Africa. I went for an innocent shower and the, there was something went wrong with the tap and just poured out this hot water and I, it, it literally wouldn't turn off yeah. and it wouldn't cool down. So it set off the fire alarm. And um, having set off the fire alarm, it turned off the electricity as well. Yeah. I don't know how all of that works. But anyway, so here I was... I'm naked in the middle of a doctor's residence in the middle of a hospital with a fire alarm going off. So I had the very dignified experience of all these very hot giant firemen arriving to save <laughs> the hospital. And there I was wet and naked with a little towel around my waist, having to sort of crawl out of this room while the firemen came in and fixed the problem. And all the women and doctors in the residence were all nurses were all gathering around this sort of heroic doctor in his little towel and wet and they're the firemen like saving it and what happened oh i don't know my hot shower set off the fire alarm so i can't say that was sort of a highlight um so i think 
the reason I married my wife is because none of the uh, women nurses or doctors in that building would look at me twice after that. So I came <laughs> home and, you know, there's no danger. Of, you, made a, you made a quick exit. <laughs> Returned to South Africa the next day, yes. <laughs> Never to be seen again. Well, hopefully there's some people that you know from that experience are listening to the show today. <laughs> we can reach out and get in touch. It's interesting something you said earlier on about um, when you're working with people of hormone level, but actually sometimes there's a lot of relationship issues. I guess now with your uh, the talks that you've done and the books that you've written, you can. You, how do you work with people in that space? Do you send them off to see a therapist or are you able to, with kind of your knowledge that you've got now, are you able to help them understand the dynamics of their relationships? Yeah, look, I think I think it's quite interesting. You know, you watch these these um, debates and whenever someone wants to attack someone, they always go, well, what's your expertise? You know, um, like one of my, my kids school teachers, they mm. said to him, what book did he read for school? He said, he read my book. He <laughs> loved it. And so his teacher goes, well, what gave your dad the um, expertise to write a book on men and women and relationships? And his answer is because I'm a human being. I mean, isn't that what all of us humans do? We study mm. other people and relationships and, you know, the greatest authors have written with great insight into people's personalities and characters and societal trends and all these things without needing a qualification. Is that, you know, that's what we all do as humans from the day we're born. We try yeah. and understand the people around us and what makes them tick. People who are good at relationships, the ones often who are getting that, and some people really don't get that for various reasons, um, all kinds of complex reasons. So I think in terms of, of relationships, as a doctor, I'm not a qualified therapist and I need to practice medicine within the um, the confines of what I'm allowed to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a marriage counselor, and I'm not going to sit with people and give them advanced marriage counselling. But within that, there's a lot of funny things that I see where it's really not very difficult to to deal with issues. Yeah. So, for example, look, there are um, you know with hormone issues, men become with low testosterone, many men become very um, demure and they have low libido and mm -hmm. um, so this, it's interesting to see the response of wives to that. So some wives come along and they're enjoying controlling their husband right. and they're enjoying the fact that their husbands don't demand any sex and do whatever they say. Yeah. And you talk about giving the husband hormonal treatment and they're like, oh, I don't think so. And the husband's <laughs> going, uh, maybe. And the wife's like, no, you're not having it, honey. I said no. And the husband's like, oh. so, you know, you obviously want as a doctor to give the guy the treatment that's going to make him healthier and happier. Mm -hmm. And then you have other women who bring in their husbands. It's not working. Make it work. Like here it is. <laughs> the husband. Make it work. You know, I'm full of drugs. <laughs> so, yeah. Give him something, make it work. He's not interested in me. I'm finding it really difficult. So mm -hmm. I think within that, um, those kinds of things, obviously I can help people to a degree and, and certainly I think I can make a diagnosis often on what's wrong. So if it's a hormonal issue, I can identify that. And if it's a marital issue, depending on its complexity, sometimes it needs to be referred on to someone. But sometimes there's simple things that I can deal with. And I, I think the best example for my book is an episode called The Lock on the Door, um, mm -hmm. where I gave exceptionally good relationship advice to a couple, if I may say so modestly myself. Um, by the way, I often make that joke. I tell people, I'm the most modest person you'll ever meet. And then they think you're being serious and they're like, that's that well, you know, you can't be if you say that. I'm like, do you not joke? So um, so so I saw this couple and they brought the wife brought the husband in and said he's got low testosterone. We need to test his testosterone levels. 
So I, I, I said to the guy, well, um, you know, do you have a normal sex drive? He said, um, yes, I, I do want to have sex with my wife. So I said to him, well, how often do you feel like having sex with my, your wife? He said, I haven't had sex with my wife for years. So I said to him, what? So he goes, no, I haven't had sex for my, with my wife for years. We've got four children, you know. And I said to him, yeah, okay. So he said, well, if you were 42 and you had four children, you would understand. And I, it was actually very funny because literally in real life, I was 42 and had four children. So, <laughs> so it was the most ridiculous thing. So I said to him, look, I, I don't understand. Like, okay, sure, you've, you're 42 and you've got four children, but why does that mean that you and your wife can't have sex if you want to? Mm. And the wife got really aggressive and she said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? We've got four children. How can we have sex with four children? I said to them, um, you could close the door, lock it. And, and they looked at me like I was bad. They were like, huh? oh, yeah. what? So I said, well, you know, you just lock your door, put a lock on the door and you lock your door and do what you need to do. Like the couple, married couples do this. And they went, Ooh, do you think our friends are doing this? I was like, Oh, some of them probably are. Yes. <laughs> Even though I reasoned, you know, they were quite weird. Maybe their friends were weird as well, but so yeah. <laughs> they got they suddenly like, like they got like really excited and they were like, Ooh, but won't the children know? And I was like, oh, you know, children reach an age where, they come to understand that by the very definition of their existence, their parents actually must have had sex. And they're okay with that because we were actually, that's normal and natural. People, it's like very cringy, but we were all designed to accept our parents must have had sex. I, I don't want to upset you, but even yours. Like mine did, <laughs> yours did. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We all accept that we were okay with that. So I said, it's okay. Just put a lock on the door and, you know, do what you need to do. Anyhow, wow, that was the wrong thing to do because, first of all, his testosterone levels were quite healthy. He yeah. came back to his next appointment, and they were so excited. They wanted to tell me all about it. And, you know, <laughs> as a doctor, I, I care a great deal about my patients. Obviously, you can tell that. Yeah. But whether I really want to hear about the excitement of the details of their sex <laughs> life, you know, there's a certain limit to what excites me. So, so I always say I. After they left, I put a lock on the door so they wouldn't come back. But um, they left. They left very happy. They, they should have actually sent me a letter of thanks, I think. But anyhow, I've never heard back from them. But I, I presume they're still Thank goodness happy. they didn't bring you a video. So, so I'm saying to you, you know, you said to me, "Can I help couples?" And I said to you, "Yes, I'm a genius." I told this couple to put a lock on the door, and I fixed all their relationship issues. Yeah. So the, the, the others I'll refer to you if it's more difficult than I a lock on the door. It's amazing though, isn't it, that they just didn't seem to think of that as a possibility. But like you said, the, if you're not, if you've been brought up perhaps to think that it's like, you know, when you've had your kids, I guess they would have had to have sex after their first kid, their second kid and their third kid. But when they had four, there was a line that they drew that you just can't have sex anymore. Um, maybe they just didn't want yeah. a number five. I don't know. I almost feel like they just needed permission to start thinking about it. It's almost like they just got this idea in their heads that it was the wrong thing to do. Mm. And then they, um, I've got an awful story about how I can go the other way though. So I was having, this is nothing to do with being an endocrinologist, an awful story. So I was having lunch with some friends and I'm, I'm by the way, I'm very opposed to children that force their way into their parents' bed for attention when they're big children, but it's a very popular fashion nowadays. Mm. Um, you know, these older kids who like whinge until their parents let them sleep with them. So this kid was much too big to be sleeping with her parents. She's not got any issues. She's a normal child. She's just yeah. spoiled, quite honestly. So yeah. she was probably uh, 
eight or nine years old sleeping with their parents. So the, the parents came to me for lunch. We were having a nice, quiet lunch. Everyone was happy. The food was delicious, made by my wife. I'm sorry to say, very gender role, um, old-fashioned, but I'm, I'm a terrible cook and she's awesome. So they were very lucky I had made the lunch. So we're eating lunch, and then the daughter turns to the table and she says, ah, oh, you know, mommy was making these really strange noises in bed last night. And she started to mimic the sounds that her mom was making, which I won't do because I'm sure you've got children <laughs> tuned into your radio show. Harry and so, yeah, so then um, the dad goes like, uh, well, uh, you know, mommy had a really sore back. And then the daughter goes, well, maybe mommy and daddy shouldn't sleep together for a while while her back gets better. And I was like, <laughs> hell yeah, I think that's a good idea. They should not be sleeping together until their back is better. So these kinds of things are, you know, that, that was one where I really thought like, wow, yeah. uh, great story. Thank you. But yeah. listen to all. Maybe um, Do not sleep in the same bed with an eight or nine-year-old child. <laughs> uh, I completely agree. Um, you know, get them out of the room, put a lock on the door, <laughs> give them lots of cowpaw, whatever it takes to, to, to uh, make sure they can't interrupt. Um, I mean, I mean the, your your stories, your your experiences are are fascinating. Um, I want to know what the secret of longevity is. <laughs> so you're hoping that it's goji berries because anyone can eat those <laughs> gluten free goji berries. And well, this is a really sad thing. But when I became a geriatrician, I decided to ask all my hundred year old patients um, what the secret was. To, so whenever I meet someone over hundred, I say, "How did you get to be so old?" Uh, well, how did, what's your secret? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's unfortunately, it's become clear to me after a while that the secret is actually in their genes. So it's genetics. Mm -hmm. So people say to me, you know, how do I know? I say, look, you've got to with patients judge what their biological age is rather than their chronological age. Um, so if someone is young physically, you want to give them certain treatments that will prolong their life because you recognize they're still quite a young person, even if they're 85 you may be worth doing open heart surgery because they've got a life expectancy that will defend it. And they're physically robust enough to handle the surgery. Whereas yeah. if they're, you know, very frail and very near the end of their life, they're not going to survive the post-op period. They won't rehabilitate. They won't recover, etc. So it's a very important thing. So people go, well, how do you know which one's going to live to 110? I say, well, that's the one who only starts seeing doctors when they're 108. You know, that's <laughs> the one that lives to 110. So, so there's, so if you want to know the secret of longevity, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, so there was a doctor who found out that there was this village in Nepal and everyone there lived to be really, really old. Mm -hmm. So he decided, I mean, there's this idea that doctors spend too much time studying disease and not enough time studying people who are well. So this doctor thinks, look, I'm going to go to this village and I'll have a look around and I'm going to find the secret to longevity. So he goes to the village and there are these unbelievably old people wandering around. He looks around, he sees this ancient guy headed towards him and he says, wow, this guy is so old. So he goes up to the guy and he says, wow, you, you must be 110. The guy goes, yes, I'm 111. He goes, wow, what is the secret for you, to your longevity? How did you get so old? And the guy goes, I was always faithful to my wife and I never drank more than one glass of wine a day and I never smoked. Doctor's like, wow, revolutionary. Never heard that kind of stuff before. Sees, some, sees this woman headed towards him and he thinks, 
this woman's even older. She's got to be 120. He walks up to her. He says, wow, madam, you look, you're, you look really old. How old are you? She goes, I'm 122. And he goes, wow, what, what's your secret? She went, I was always faithful to my husband, and I never drank more than a glass of wine a day. I've never smoked. It's like, wow, I'm learning all the time. Then he sees this guy headed to me, realizes this guy is the oldest guy in the village. He says, sir, you are, I mean, sorry to be rude, but you're ancient. How did you get this way? And the guy says to him, well, I slept with every woman I met. I've drunk a bottle of whiskey a day. I smoked 40 cigarettes a day. And the doctor's like, wow, and how old are you? He goes, I'm 42. <laughs> so the secret of longevity is actually incredibly boring. The best evidence is to eat less, exercise more, and don't put tons of harmful toxins in your body. But there is a, another thing I will say, and that is that the um, longest running study of human happiness, the adult, the Harvard Adult Development Study, actually shows that people who have happy relationships are healthier and live longer than people who don't. So mm. that's a, a fascinating uh, a truth mm. that being nice to other people being faithful to your partner, actually caring about other people, connecting with community and other people is actually the key to longevity. So there's a most unexpected answer from a doctor, isn't it? <laughs> is to have great relationships. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Essentially, I quote that quite a lot. It's the Grant Gluick study, I believe. It's about 80 years it's been going on. And, and they did yep. say that that's the conclusion was to have the happiest, most fulfilled life depends on the quality of your relationship. Yes, and I must tell you something else that's very fascinating. Mm. That is, people who have good sex lives live longer than people who have bad sex lives. That's just important. And I've always thought, so when when a husband chases his wife around, it's just because he cares deeply about her health and longevity. It's just, <laughs> just trying to help her, you know, stay healthy. And uh, uh, what you mean about bad sex? You don't just mean bad sex; they just don't have sex. <laughs> well, exactly. People who have more frequent—that's a very good point. People who have more frequent <laughs> sex live longer. Although it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dodgy statistic because of course people who, who are unwell unfortunately often their sex lives diminish because they are not well. So the most healthy, robust people are usually have more ability, they have healthier hormones and more you know higher sex drives. So I think it is a bit of a dodgy statistic, but it's one that I quote very frequently anyhow with my wife. So <laughs> and I can completely see why you would do that. Um, and, and in your book, you and you talk about gender differences in relationships. You've already touched on this uh, earlier on in the conversation. Could you, you could talk talk a little bit more? Because you, you mentioned about um, so as we evolve as a human species, there's there's this kind of gender roles that we kind of grew into in order to for our species to survive. And you mentioned earlier on that there's like there is a complexity around that now, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very controversial area because it's become so politicized and yet much of it is biological and genetic and evolutionary. So um, first of all, I think it's, you know, masculinity and femininity were the tools we were given to attract each other and survive. And, you know, men and women find each other very attractive and that's why they get together and, you know, have children. That's how the species survives. If we didn't find each other attractive and the is not again excluding people who are different, but for heterosexual people, you know, that's what you know keeps people breeding, keeps the species alive. But within our genetics is the fact that women are designed to fall pregnant, breastfeed, and nurture infants. 
and there is a skill set that comes with that. And the I think the tragedy of, of modern politics is to denigrate that because there's a sort of very confused idea that if we admit that women are designed to be mothers, that that's somehow an unacceptable thing to say. But I'm sorry to say that is what they were designed to be. I mean, human survival entirely depends on that beautiful genetic design. And so there are many tools that women are equipped with for that role. And so, for example, um, they have the so-called multitasking is actually, I don't believe it's multitasking at all. It's actually something much more sophisticated than that. Women have a sense of lots of objects moving in time and space, and they kind of can keep track of a lot of things in their brain at once, mm -hmm. where men are very zoned in and very unifocused in the way that they think. So mm -hmm. for women, they kind of can keep an eye on what all the children are doing at once, and they know where they all are and what homework's due on what day and what child needs to be picked up from what time, and mm -hmm. they can cook a meal and be on a Zoom call to work and still know where all the kids are and what needs to be done. It's actually a very magical ability which mm -hmm. men don't tend to have because we zone in on something and that's because we fundamentally for survival are protectors mm. and hunters. So we are designed, unfortunately, we are designed to fight, to protect our families, to you know hunt and all of those things require a focus on a target mm. and now the survival depends on actually not being distracted by other issues. So when you're fighting in a war or hunting something, you can't be thinking about what homework's due tomorrow. Yeah. So, We've only had opportunity for a very brief period of evolution for the societal changes that have happened. So, you know, women didn't used to have contraception. It's very recent invention. If with effective contraception is a very recent invention. They didn't used to be formula bottles. So for humans to stay alive, women couldn't actually not fall pregnant if they were sexually active in a relationship. So they were either menstruating where their products were protecting them against that were terrible, they were breastfeeding, they were nurturing infants, they were pregnant. They didn't really have the opportunities to be doing the same things that men were doing. Mm. So now I think the problem in the modern time is that I'm very pro-women doing the things that make them happy and for society to support that. Mm -hmm. And so my wife is actually a specialist doctor. She's in the medical invention. She's got her own medical invention company. She's you know, an amazing person. Yeah. And I encourage her and support her in all of those things. Um, and I'm very pro-women being presidents and CEOs, getting all the opportunities. But I don't think that we can use that to cancel biology because ultimately when I see my wife with her kids, it's the most beautiful thing seeing a mother with a baby. And it's lovely seeing a father with a baby. But quite honestly, we aren't equipped with exactly the same emotional and biological tools. And those impacts on relationships because – on average in relationships, men often are very zoned in on things. Mm -hmm. And I think wives are very good at teaching their husbands to connect in different, more diverse ways. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about marriage is that you have a lot of these young men who sort of bounce around doing stupid things and drinking in the pub and, you know, shouting rude words at the screen and at the ref, you know, every Saturday football game. Yeah. And they marry a woman. And when they get back with their friends, they can have a bit of sort of a throwback session where they go back to what they were a little bit. But yeah. then they go home with their wife and they're actually, their wives refine them into being really civilized, caring husbands and fathers, you know. And, and the wife doesn't want a boorish guy who's like swearing and, you know, you know, shouting and screaming and being. So I think that's what's so amazing about relationships is that we, we grow together and maybe there are aspects of what men have 
that often their wives learn from as well. I always say that, um, you know, men improve in the men get the opportunity. Improvement makes us happy. You know, one of the greatest things that will make a human being happy is to improve. Mm-hmm. And we can always aim to improve. That's one thing that we can never give up on is we may not be great at something, but we can always try and get better. So in a relationship, you know, men um, improve by listening to their wives and actually getting better at being human beings often. <laughs> and women improve by learning to tolerate their husbands. That's just a joke of mine. <laughs> Uh, and maybe also taking some of the skills of their husbands on board at the same time. Who knows whether they need it or not? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, we could talk for hours. Unfortunately, we have we've, we're kind of coming to an end. I just want to hear the story. You've got a, a nice story to tell about. So when we came on air today, um, there are a few issues with connection as there can be in this world of Zoom. Um, you were going to tell me a story about the computer that you're using. Oh, yes. Well, it's actually a male-female story. So I don't know if you know this, but studies show that, that, that female infants start to notice faces from a much earlier age than male infants. And male infants have more of an eye for changes in their environment. Right. And that actually persists into adulthood. So on average, and this has been very carefully studied, women have better memories for faces and emotions. Emotional memory is greater. And men have greater um, recognition of things and a greater fascination with things. So on average, men, for example, love cars. That, that's the reason for that. And, they, and interestingly, they even did a study on rhesus monkeys. Mm-hmm. And they gave them fluffy toys and cars with wheels. And yeah. all the male rhesus monkeys grabbed the cars with wheels and all the female monkeys grabbed the, the, the fluffy toys. So you can go look up that study. I think it was Diane Halpern who did that study. So it's it's a true story. Um, So my wife is always getting irritated with me because I love, like I buy gadgets and cars and she's like, why would you care to buy a nice car? What is wrong with you? And I'm like, there's something about the sound that it makes you, your car makes embarrassing sounds. I've got three teenage boys and they're like, no, mom. That car sounds are awesome. And my wife's like, it's so embarrassing when you turn on your car and it growls. And I'm like, oh, it's so awesome. So, so my wife's like, you always have to get the best gadgets. And why do you have to? And I'm like, I don't always get the best gadgets, but I do like awesome gadgets. So, mm-hmm. so when I started doing podcast interviews like yours today, I, I, I realized I needed to get a podcasting mic and a, um, and a, and a little webcam. Mm-hmm. So I went on the internet and I found a nice little i read some reviews and i got this little webcam was like 97 dollars. so my wife then rings me from home and she goes what is wrong with you and i was like like that narrows it down to like but these giant boxes have arrived at the house and when you said you were ordering a webcam I wasn't expecting you to get this giant monitor and this giant laptop for thousands of dollars. And I was like, it was like $97. Like, how is this possible? So anyway, she's getting really, really angry. She keeps going, why would you spend all this money on podcast interviews? Like, what are you doing? Anyway, it turns out that it was a, her telehealth equipment that had arrived because she's become (laughs) a telehealth doctor. She, she does, um, she, she actually gives care over telehealth to, patients in regional Australia who don't have doctors, they have nursing stations. 
Yeah. And the company's so organized, it sent her these giant monitors and computer screens and everything. Yeah. I was utterly bemused, like, I, I didn't order oh, giant oh. screens. And so, <laughs> so anyway, we've taken advantage of that tonight because my useless $97 webcam and all of its accessories have broken down. So I'm using my wife's splendid telehealth equipment to talk to you. So that she doesn't like anyway. <laughs> well, no, it's way too expensive, but you got it for free. So it's okay. It's interesting what you said about the noise because there's someone, I've got a filter on my mic, but um, a motorbike, I'm not sure if you heard it, halfway through our, our conversation, a motorbike pulled up outside and I love the sound of it. And I, But I was also very irritated because I was thinking it was going to ruin the whole podcast. But I thought, oh, I was kind of in two minds. I really like the sound, but I also don't want you to be here. <laughs> See, luckily, because I'm male, I was so focused on what we were talking about that I didn't uh, <laughs> the motorbike. I think that must be my my female, so my feminine energy side coming out a little bit as well there then. Um, thank you for your time uh, today, Ricky. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you. Um What's, what's on the horizon for you and how can people kind of get in touch with you if they want to reach out, find out more about your book and the stuff that you do? Oh, well, thank you. Um, uh, DrRickyAronson.com is my website. And there's quite my own podcast, Happy Healthy Ever After, on that website. My book, Women Are Superior to Men, is on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm doing, I'm trying to actually become a social influencer. So I'm doing quite a lot of stuff and I'll have my own YouTube channel up soon. Really, what I'm trying to promote is a positive message about gender and sexuality and relationships and to quieten all this noise about how we all need to dislike each other and be divided and mm. believe in things that are, I think, a little bit crazy. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can completely agree. And I, I really look forward to, to listening to what you're going to be doing in the future. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Is there any kind of words of wisdom or a favorite quote or something you just like to leave the listeners with today? Well, firstly, I, I, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, you're, you're so, so nice. And it's an honor as well. It really is a fantastic experience. Um, yes, I do want to say that I think we live in a world where people have become so negative and divided. And yet the beauty of the fact that two people can fall in love and spend a lifetime together, have children together, those are things that we easily take for granted, but it, it's the most beautiful and magical thing that you can bring together two completely different people with different backgrounds and so much different, so many different aspects and so much different cultural bag, baggage and emotions. And the two people can become something so much greater than themselves together. So, mm. so I'd say don't lose faith in humanity and in love as, as, um, as, um, much as that may sound a bit sappy i i really do believe that okay and hopefully the messages that you put out moving forward will uh go some way to convince people to, to, to do just that thank you thank you look after yourself and i look forward to speaking to you again thank you so much for having me thank you for listening Please subscribe, follow and review the show. That is very much appreciated. And please do reach out if you would like to know more about how you can create healthy, intimate relationships in your life. I will leave you with this quote from Carl Bond. Although we can't go back and make a brand new start, we can start now and make a brand new ending. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Relationship Guide.